Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. You know, Aaron Miles, Chief Investment Officer of Verona Holdings, I've been here now for, you know, over two years. Uh, prior to that, I was at the New York Stock Exchange, as well as Cresco Labs, uh, competing tier one operator uh, in the cannabis industry. And then outside of that, I've spent, you know, about 20 years um, in the U.S. side of the business world um, in capital markets at, you know, various publicly traded companies. Um, but really happy to, to be at Verano and, and, you know, kind of being a part of everything that we're accomplishing. Yeah, and, and catch us up on, on the latest on Verano. Obviously, there's a lot happening in the industry these days, uh, especially as it relates to, you know, Kiralief announced uh, a few weeks ago about layoffs. Um, you guys are also obviously a tier one MSO. How are you guys dealing with sort of the environment we're in here? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the challenges in the space is how do you appropriately build headcount ahead of growth? And when you have so much uncertainty in the space, you know, you, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you know, taking a best guess, but you're, you're building the business based off of how you see the trajectory of growth. Um, I feel like we've done an extremely good job of not getting too far over our skis. Um, you know, we do have areas where we beefed up, we have areas where we've right-sized a little bit, but it was probably more around, you know, the retail side of the business, how much we're staffing our stores, how many hours we're staying open, you know, looking at profitability of each store. But in, in, in reality, you know, we've been very methodical in the way that we've built this business where, you know, you invest ahead of growth, not too far ahead, and then you kind of move on to that next tranche of growth opportunities. So for us, you know, we've very, been very, very careful, um, in, you know, in the headcount um, that we were adding um, to our, you know, overall portfolio, which showed up in the quarter. You know, we had 38%, you know, SG&A is a percent of revenue. That was down from 45% in the prior quarter as we were beefing up some of our capabilities. But overall, you know, one of the main reasons why we do drive industry-leading EBITDA margins is because of the, you know, tight expense management that we have, right? You know, we can take a guess on what our business is going to look like five to 10 years out from now. But in reality, it's it's kind of a wait and see approach, but making sure that we're not missing any of those opportunities. So we shouldn't expect to, to hear any sort of announcement about layoffs for the company in the next few quarters. Yeah, no, I would say that's not um, on the docket. I mean, I think, you know, we definitely highlighted on some of our earnings calls that, you know, we've taken action to, to really fine tune our business, but nothing from a dramatic scale that would, uh, you know, trigger a, 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 you know, an announcement of any sort. Got it. That, that's great to hear. Um, and, and the next, I just want to move on to sort of, you know, growth, especially in new markets. So you guys are in Maryland, which, of course, uh, expecting adult use next year. Can you tell us more about that market? Uh, Connecticut's another one that's recently adult use. Uh, and then would love to hear if you have any views on interest in Missouri. Sure. Our Basic agenda for Verano is to build a presence uh, in a medical market in a limited licensed vertically integrated state and establish ourselves ahead of adult use. We did it in Illinois. We did it in New Jersey. Maryland is a legacy state for us. So we're maxed out with four dispensaries and we have a, a very strong cultivation facility there. Um, we do you know, anticipate you know, being a major player once adult use turns on in that market. And again, it was something that we've been positioning for, for for really years at this juncture. But really over the last couple of months, we were making sure that our cultivation was on point to, to really absorb a lot of that demand coming in from adult use. Connecticut's another one. We, you know, we um, acquired the company CT Pharma. Uh, part of that was a, you know, a 217,000 square foot cultivation 
facility, which was an old McKesson warehouse. So when you think about proper standards and shipping, you know, uh, areas and stuff like that, I mean, this was on point for, for really coming in and being able to uh, level up from a Verano perspective. So we're ready in Connecticut, we're ready in Maryland, but we're also ready in Ohio and PA and Florida and, you know, other markets that are really primed to turn onto adult use. And that, again, is, is really the, the, you know, the standard for Verano is to make sure that we're ahead of that growth. So regarding Missouri, which sort of fits what you've laid out, is, is that something that the company's looked at? Um, you know, I assume there's interest there, but, you know, why, why not uh, Missouri today? Sure. I mean, Missouri is a sister state to Illinois, so it's one that we paid close attention to. I mean, our cultivation facility down in Albion is closer to St. Louis than it is to Chicago. So we've definitely paid attention to the state of Missouri. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're always exploring every opportunity, you know, that we can have. And, and Missouri is, is in that docket of, of exploration. You know, we are having multiple conversations in that state, just kind of seeing what those opportunities um, would, would, could potentially present themselves. But we're also looking at states outside of that. You know, it, it, it's our due diligence to always look at, you know, what assets we can add to be accretive. We're not a numbers play. You know, we don't want to have the biggest footprint just to have the biggest footprint. We want to make sure that when we add an asset that it's very accretive uh, as well as, um, you know, a, a very standard Verano type of product that we would add to the portfolio. Yeah, and, and on that point, I'd love to discuss sort of the termination of goodness growth. I assume, you know, when that was announced, it was an interest in New York, maybe Minnesota as well. Um, kind of walk us through, you know, the thinking on, on that termination. I know there's still sort of pending lawsuits there. So would love any updates you could provide. Sure. You know, we do get this question, uh, you know, obviously anticipated quite a bit. Um you know, we're careful, right, because there is pending litigation. So, you know, really outside of what we make publicly available, um, you know, we can't say too much more. But that said, um, you know, we want to make sure people understand that, you know, this wasn't, you know, decision to terminate the deal wasn't based off of um, the state of New York or the state of Minnesota. It was more of a breach of agreement. And we laid those out um, where there was just some actions being taken on the other side that, you know, we just necessarily weren't comfortable with. So we terminated the deal. Uh, so that said, uh, you know, we're still interested in New York and in Minnesota, right? Like we'll continue to evaluate those opportunities, but the New York market has really, you know, kind of changed from the time we announced the deal to, to where it's at now. And so we're going to wait to see how that market plays out. We're going to continue to have those conversations, but for now, uh, we felt it was in the best interest of the company and our shareholders to terminate the business growth acquisition. Right. So, so you said the termination wasn't necessarily because of how New York was sort of developing or rather not developing, um, you know, any sort of uh, thoughts on, on New York and, you know, how that market is playing out today. So I think long term, there's a lot of opportunity in New York, right? The opportunity is, you know, it's a massive state. They have a huge footprint. There's a high demand for cannabis in the state. Um, there is a, a very large illicit market in, in New York. And right, that's the opportunity is to transition illicit over to legal. But, you know, the way that the state's kind of rolling this out and the way that they're, you know, you know, the fee structure and, you know, kind of the limitations on some of the MSOs, at least in the initial round of rules and regulations, um, aren't necessarily as friendly as, you know, we would probably have originally anticipated. But longer term, I mean, there's still value that we see in New York, but but near term, um, I, I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for some of these operators to, to really get going in the state. So again, that said, you know, it, it, we would be remiss to not, you know, uh, continue to evaluate those opportunities. I mean, we had opportunities to get into the state in 2017 and 2018. And I mean, you know, we thought in 2019 that Cuomo was just going to roll 
you know, what, you know, adult use into his budget. And then all of a sudden it was going to turn on before 2020. And, and obviously we all know how that played out. So I think, uh, you know, we, we definitely have taken the appropriate path to evaluate that opportunity. And, and now we're in a position to continue to do so. And, and then is there a thought on sort of when the market makes sense to enter? I know you guys are watching it develop, but is there a certain sort of trigger point where you know, Verano has to then get into New York rather quickly? Um, I, I would say it's, you know, as you see that market develop and ramp up, right, I think the interest would continue to grow, but you also have to have the right asset. You know, I don't think licensing is going to be available for an operator of our size and especially being a multi-state operator, they seem to be a little bit limited with opportunities in the state. So, you know, as assets become available, we'll evaluate and as the market, you know, evolves and becomes more uh, productive, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, look at um, kind of that inflection point of when we want to get in there. But I can tell you we're in no hurry. Uh, we could stop right now with our footprint and still have one of the strongest in the space. And, and, you know, again, you know, one of the most profitable and 30, you know, 36% adjusted EBITDA margins in the quarter, you know, we're tops in the space and and we're proud of that. Yeah. And it's, it's great that you brought up the adjusted EBITDA margins. I know there's a, a slide in the investor presentation that compares Verano to the other four tier one MSO peers. You guys are at 36%. Other peers are anywhere between 18 to 33%. Um, is there a, a, a you know outlook on sort of that adjusted EBITDA margin going into next year and, and how you know that should increase or, or remain stabilized? Yeah, it's it's really hard to predict what range we would expect for adjusted EBITDA margins. But the one thing that we wanted to make crystal clear, uh, you know, in our communication is that we we feel we have the ability to you know outperform the market, right? And that's given that efficiency that we talked about. It's the cost controls that we have in place. But it's also um, the product portfolio that we roll out. You know, we were a premium brand for a very, very long time and a premium brand only because it's sold, right? And premium brands generally gen you know, generate higher margins. Well, given the recessionary pressure, given supply chain dynamics, you know, COVID, everything else that's been layered in, we rolled out a value in a mid-tier brand, which initially generally will have a little bit more margin compression. But what we're doing is, is we're building a lot of automation behind these products. And so there, it's twofold. When you see adoption of these products at a lower margin, you know, we're going to feel that compression up front. But as we implement more automation where it's, you know, automated trimming and, and you know, more machines to handle some of the you know, production instead of, you know, human capital, um, that's going to help boost margins. But then as well, um, if you think about it in a state like Pennsylvania, we were buying a value in a mid-tier brand to put on our shelves because of, you know, customer selection preference. Well, now we're able to actually roll out our own products and run more of our product through our own stores um, because we now have a, a broader breadth of flour available to the market. So I would say margins over time, um, you know, I, I think you might see a little bit of compression from a margin perspective. You know, generally you see CPG industries range from 25 to 30%. Us, again, I feel like we do have a very strong ability to outperform the market and, you know, we'll continue to, to kind of push for that. But longer term with margins, I mean, nobody could have predicted COVID, nobody could have predicted recession I mean, layer on a hurricane and everything else. I'm just, I'm waiting to see the grasshoppers and the locusts show up next, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough times that we operate in, but I would say as the market stabilizes, as we become more efficient, you'll see our margins stabilize as well, but... 
Yeah. And then, you know, talking about brands, you guys have a focus on focusing on your own brands in, in stores versus other tier one MSOs that may have acquired larger brands in the past or partner with brands to bring it into Florida or other states that they operate in. What's sort of the view from Verano on, on brands that's different from these tier one MSOs? So we take a very similar approach to brands as we do to M&A, right? Like we would love to do everything organically. So if you could get a license win like we did in New Jersey, build out those assets and really position yourself ahead of adult use. I mean, that's the slam dunk in the industry. Same thing with brands, right? Like we created very strong brands. We created a very strong reputation for high quality flower. And what we're doing now is we're branching off of that and we're creating new brands. So again, with flower, now we have the full breadth of a value uh, mid-tier and then a you know a premium brand so it's savvy essence and, and our verano brands on the edible line we have our encore edibles and what we're doing is is we're branching off of there as well so we have your, your legacy edibles but then now we rolled out bits which is now incorporating adaptogens you have you know uh, different you know variations of that as well but then we partnered with tyson 2.0 you know we had a relationship with the group uh, it met our kind of criteria for what we would want to roll into our product portfolio. And it's a premium product. It's very well received into the market and kind of fits seamlessly in our product portfolio. So, you know, kind of go back to my original comment of, you know, we're not just a, a numbers game, right? Like we don't want to throw a thousand products at you. We want to throw the right products at you. And so on the M&A front, we're not going to add all 50 states, you know, if they become available just to add them, we want to add the right states for the business. And it's the same thing with our product portfolio is, you know, we're looking to evolve and adapt. And when we talk about investing ahead of growth, we do the same thing with our product portfolio, right? 2016, 2017, you know, and, and I joke around about this and people probably heard me say this joke a million times, but like you could put, you know, cannabis in a shoebox and sell it, right? Because, you know, there was very limited supply in the market. So people were looking for the best, you know, product quality. Well, branding and, you know, product selection is now becoming more relevant. And we're able to adapt our portfolio ahead of that, but not too far ahead where you're sitting on those investments and waiting for the market to catch up. So our, our portfolio will continue to, um, you know, uh, evolve. We're going to look at, you know, different form factors, right? I mean, obviously beverages will play a, a role at some point, but um, we have a lot of variations of our current product portfolio that we can um, put into the market. And, and how are those like six core brands ranking in their respective markets? So I would say very quickly, you've seen like the savvy and the essence flower lines um, become very strong, right? And, and, you know, let me be clear on this too. When you think of a, a, a value in a mid-tier brand, you're, you know, people probably assume lower quality, but in reality, it's the same genetics, right? So when you're smoking some of our, our high quality, high premium flower, we're using those same genetics uh, for, for these value in these mid tiers, but it's the way that it goes from, you know, seed to, to production to sale is really where you're seeing efficiencies. It's more automated, you know, you're letting the, the plants get taller, you're bunching them a little bit more, you're, you know, so you're growing at a lower cost, but the, the quality of the, the flower is still there. So I would say you've seen a ramp up from the, the savvy and the essence line. And then now these new bits, um, you know, uh, edibles that we've rolled out, we can't even keep them on the shelves. And, and trust me, we've produced quite a few of them. Um, because now the world is evolving into adaptogens, right? You know, people want ashwagandha and their stuff and they want reishi mushrooms and it's a, it's a complement to, to THC and cannabis. So I think we're really just scratching the surface at what we can do from a product perspective, but legacy Verano flower is always going to be king. It's, uh, it's the highest quality flower, um, that we have and, and one of the tops in the market. And, 
Um, so I think you're 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 always going to have flour at the top. I, you know, again, I think you see savvy in essence really accelerating towards the top, especially in light of um, you know the current market dynamics. But um, you know, our edible lines also growing. So, so I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier in, in terms of Tyson 2.0. So what gap did that fill that wasn't met with an in-house brand? And then also um, sort of any, you know, options um, or I guess any concerns that it's not exclusive to Verano, that it also, you know, it's a brand that partners with your competitors in, in a Columbia Care Cresco lab. Sure. I mean, I, and I think you've seen that, you know, um, with different, you know, vendors as well, right? Like there's cross partnerships and, you know, for us, um, you know, the gap that it filled, it was just another um, option for our consumer base, right? And it, it was a product, a higher quality, higher premium product that's able to leverage our high quality flour to be able to roll into, uh, you know, our product portfolio. So it didn't necessarily fill a massive gap in our portfolio as much as it complemented our portfolio. So I think that, you know, we'll continue to look to potentially do some of those types of partnerships where um, it's kind of outside the Verano norm. I think our consumer base, you know, wants variety and they want new stuff. So I think it kind of filled that gap more than really we had a, a you know, um, a, a hole in our product portfolio that we needed to fill. And then are there other brands that, um, you know, sort of fit that same profile to Tyson 2.0 that you're paying attention to today? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously we have to be careful. Um, you know, there's conversations that we're having, but I would say there's some well-known brands that, you know, we're having a conversation with, um, you know, to kind of see what, you know, a potential partnership would look like. But, you know, very similar to M&A, we're very happy with our footprint, you know, very similar to our product portfolio. We're very happy with that. And I think we're getting to a point where we can evolve that quickly. But, you know, you start to look at, you know, beverages, for instance, I mentioned that, like, is it easier to build in-house or is it easier to partner? And, and I think those are the types of conversations that we're having. That would be more of a fill-in, right? Like, because we don't have a beverage at the moment. So it's like, you know, Tyson was a compliment to the edibles. If we did something in the beverage line, I think it would be a little bit more of, of a fill-in or like a hole in the gap uh, of our portfolio. But beverages in general are, are, are very slow to, to ramp up. I mean, it's hard. You have to do it state by state. You can't have economies of scale. You can't have distribution hubs. I mean, you know, it'd be like Budweiser having to literally produce beer in all 50 states and not being able to ship across state lines. So, you know, we're having those types of conversations and, and you know, some well-known brands that I think people would recognize the names of, but, you know, nothing uh, nothing to announce at this time. Yeah, and I figure you probably wouldn't want to mention anything since that might give away some leverage. That's right. We like to keep it close to the chest. You know that, so. Um, and, and then on the retail brand side, so you have two main retail brands, uh, Zen Leaf and Move. Uh, is, is there any thinking around consolidating in, into one brand over time, or you guys are happy to keep that separate? For now, keep it separate. Um, I would say down in Florida, the Move brand was so strong that, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it type of concept. And so for us down in Florida, we wanted to make sure that we maintained and kind of nurtured that brand. Zenleaf outside of that um, is, is really, uh, I would say, the evolution of Georgia's hospitality background. You know, we, we're totally under the mindset that your last experience at a dispensary, your last experience, in, you know, using one of our products is what you're going to judge us on. So we take uh, a lot of pride in the way that we're able to build out our dispensaries. And Zenleaf has created a very strong and national brand, even if it's on a state by state basis. So I think for now, we're very comfortable with Zenleaf kind of being the broader um, dispensary brand that we'll have across, you know, the, the footprint outside of Florida. And then. 
Mentioning the hospitality background uh, and knowing that Nevada recently announced consumption lounges, um, what, what, what's a company's view on consumption lounges today? It's something we're evaluating. Uh, you know, we haven't announced any definitive plans around that, but, you know, I think you, you'll get a very similar to response to a lot of things where, you know, it, it's a very incestuous world that we operate in. So, you know, if one, one person's looking at something, we're all looking at it. And I think as of now, we're, you know, we have a very strong footprint in, in Nevada with five dispensaries and, you know, we have a very strong cultivation presence um, where, I mean, obviously some of our products have won some, some awards in the state, but for us, um, you know, we're kind of happy with what we have going on there now, but it's not out of the realm for us to, to evaluate what a consumption model should look like in the, in the future. Got it. And then are you guys applying to any new states? Uh, you know, I know you guys have a dispensary in Arkansas, so Alabama is another one that's going to open up uh, pretty soon. What, what states are on the horizon for organic applications? So, you know, again, we're careful to announce too many things uh, publicly, but I would say if the state is going down a licensing route, um, we're definitely evaluating that opportunity. And we have a very strong history of winning state, uh, winning licenses in, in limited license states. Um, so a state like Alabama, I think, would be of interest. And so we're going to continue to evaluate that. Arkansas, you know, like a state like um, Michigan, you know, we only have a single dispensary in each of those states. We're not here to just run dispensaries. We want to be have a balanced approach to our portfolio. So vertical integration is probably the name of the game. So I would say we're always going to look to be vertically integrated in every state that we operate in and continue to evaluate op opportunities around that. New states coming online, um, you know, like you know, like Georgia and Alabama and stuff like that. Like we'll we'll, we'll definitely try to throw our hat in the ring for these things. But um, for now, it's uh, um, you know kind of to be determined on how that plays out. And then on that point, you know, the, if I look at the map of your platform or, or footprint, you know, Michigan looks like one where uh, I just have to ask you, you have one dispensary there, there's no really any cultivation or other facilities. So what's the deal with, with Michigan for Verano? And trust me, I, I would love a bigger presence. I'm from Michigan. Uh, you know, I'm a homer for the state. I, I, I love it. Uh, you know, don't tell anybody, but more than Illinois. But uh, I would say this, I mean, Michigan's a very fragmented state, you know, the caregiver program, you know, put a big dent in that state. And you look at, you know, it did a massive, massive amount uh, of revenue um, mm -hmm. in, in last quarter of like 650 million. And you look at what that could mean if you could go in and establish a market share position, but there's really nobody running away with market share in the state of Michigan, given that fragmentation. But I would say, um, you know, our, our first of all, our Buchanan store on the southwest side, um, we've had to, to renovate and expand. It's it's doing so well, and I think it's again, it's that hospitality aspect. It's the just the the consumer experience that's really driving a lot of sales around that dispensary. But um, you know, look, we'll continue to evaluate opportunities. Um, you know, your margins do um, uh, benefit from vertical integration, and you know, if an operator can come in and really grab market share it would be an operator like Verano. So we'll continue to evaluate those opportunities. You know, we don't want to uh, remain a single, you know, dispensary operator in the state. And, you know, we'll look to, um, you know, see what's available. Yeah, because I would say there are a few operators like Loom that have 30 or so stores that are Berkeley integrated. But my guess would have been Verano, maybe not as interested today in Michigan because of the unlimited licensed nature of the state. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit different. Michigan is a, you know, the municipalities almost work like a limited license structure. You have to know people to to really be able to ramp up your presence in each municipality. But you are correct. I mean, you know, when you have almost 600 dispensaries and, 
you know, you have a company like Loom, right, with a massive presence, but not a lot of market share. Um, you know, it's it, it shows you how hard it is to operate in that state. You know, you also have to figure out how you want to enter a state like Michigan, right? And, and we have to be careful from an MA perspective to dilute the stock, especially at where we're trading at. So, you know, again, you know, there's a reason why MA has slowed down in the space. You know, um, you know, we're, we're not going to go out and, you know, rip a, you know, a bunch of deals and throw, you know, a bunch of cash at these. You know, you want to be able to leverage your stock as currency and, you know, given where we're trading at right now, we just, you know, don't want to dilute the stock at these levels. So I think once you see the markets, you know, if you see the markets, let me caveat that, um, you know, pick up, I think you might see an acceleration of M&A, but, you know, again, you know, we're having conversations in every state and that's not uh, an outlier for any company. I mean, we're, we're all looking at the same things and we're all seeing how it would fit into our, you know, overall portfolio, but, you know, Michigan is a, a very fragmented state. Um, Colorado was a fragmented state. And look what happened there. It's, it's definitely cleaning up. It's tightening up. Um, I think regulators are getting a better grasp on what that market should look like. And so maybe we'll let these uh, operators beat each other up a little bit in the state of Michigan, and then we'll kind of evaluate what, what those opportunities look like. Yep, that, that makes a lot of sense to kind of come in when maybe valuations are a bit more favorable uh, on a relative basis even. Yeah, I think we would uh, be viewed very negatively if we were out just throwing uh, equity around. And unfortunately for us, we went public and the markets have literally gone down <laughs> since February of 21. So we haven't really been able to play around in the equity market. Um, but again, we're very conservative in everything we do. It's why we've never done a sale lease back. It's why we've only taken the amount of debt that we've needed and kind of moved on to the next facility. And that's why you're not seeing us issue massive amounts of shares or a debt facility with warrants or anything attached to it, because we understand where we're trading at and we want to be careful of that. Yeah. So, so on that point, uh, since we're speaking about the balance sheet, um, so as of 930, cash is 76.4 million, debt is 392.1 million. You guys recently refied, pushing out uh, debt all the way to 2026, October. Um, so give us an idea of how you're managing that kind of cash and, and debt balance. Yeah. So I would say um, from a cash perspective, um, I think in the near term, cash is going to be king. You know, before I would tell you, you know, when we generate free cash flow, you're going to want us to run that number as close to zero because you're going to want us to invest that back into our footprint to build out our facilities. You're seeing states kind of push out adult use turnouts. So Pennsylvania is a perfect example of this where, you know, we were building on a second facility through a clinical registrant license that we acquired. Um, it's a 75,000 square foot facility. The walls are up, the lighting's up, you know, we're ready to go there. But we paused because the anticipation of adult use is shifting now. So you as an investor is not going to want us to invest in a facility and, and sit on a you know $20 million investment when adult use isn't going to turn on for you know a couple of years. At least that's the anticipation. So the reason I say that is now you're seeing a trend in the industry where people are pulling back on CapEx. So we're going to be building cash balances. And when you look at the flexibility that we were able to build into our, our, our debt facility, it's $350 million refi. Six and a half percent plus prime. So at the time we announced it was 1275 total. And so what we do though is we built in optionality on the first hundred million where we pay a million dollar prepayment penalty and then we can pay down that first hundred million with a very, very low prepayment penalty. So as we're building cash up, you're going to see us paying down high levels of debt. And then being able to leverage our real estate in other capacities where we can do singles, you know, basically like a state chartered bank mortgage on a on a you know a facility at you know mid single digits 
and kind of lump these together to be able to you know, create a very lower blended rate compared to what we went to market with. So I think what you're going to see is us paying down debt. Um, I think you're going to see cash build. Um, and then, you know, obviously we're going to pay very, very close attention to save and then see what kind of opportunities that presents itself. But um, for now, we're very comfortable with the balance sheet. We're very comfortable that we have unencumbered real estate. And once safe, you know, um, if and when safe passes, let me caveat this, um, you know, we're going to be able to, you know, really be an outlier in the space with leveraging our, our real estate very creatively. Okay, so so there's um, a, a thought that the, the company is probably going to be at cash flow break even or cash flow positive uh, pretty soon. We've been so um, last quarter um, it dipped, but we've also spent a massive amount on capex uh, for the bulk majority of our publicly traded existence and our private existence. We were cash flow positive, free cash flow positive. So um, you know, I think you're you're going to see us, you know, kind of revert. I mean, we're looking at you know a twenty million dollar capex budget in uh, Q four. That puts us at 130 million for the year, but next year we're only looking at 25 to 50 million. So, you know, we're definitely pulling back on capex. Um, so, you know, free cash flow generation is not out of the realm. We're very proud of the fact that we've been profitable since inception. So, I would say, um, you know, lower capex is going to help. But then, um, you know, obviously, if you can ramp up the top line and become a more efficient operator, that that will help as well. And, and is that factoring in taxes as well and into that cash flow? So we paid 21 million of taxes in the quarter. What we do is we generally carry about 12 to 18 months of our taxes in arrears. And it, it, this has been a massive point of, of contention for us because you know people don't understand really what we're doing with our taxes. And so what we can do, and this is not uncommon for cannabis or even outside of cannabis with some very large US institutions that have done this as well, you can defer your taxes and the penalties and fees that you pay are basically mid single digits. So, you know, cheaper cheaper. exactly. So then what do you want us to do as an investor? Do you want us to go rack off a sale lease back, which is going to be high teens out 20 years, just so you can see a lower number on the balance sheet? Or do you want us to pay down this high debt, leverage this tax component and being able to defer our taxes and use that almost like, a, you know, a, a cost of capital reduction? So for us, we're going to continue to defer, even if safe passes. Uh, we probably can still pay, you know, penalties and fees lower than what we could borrow at. So we're going to continue to leverage this. We're going to, you know, pay what, you know, the government's looking for us to pay. But in reality, we're very comfortable with this strategy. And I think one of the big pushbacks is not everybody has leveraged this. And so some operators who have gone out there and done sale leasebacks and, you know, paid down their income taxes, it looks great in the balance sheet. But in reality, they're, they're just costing more interest expense to their investors. Yeah, I think that's something people probably don't assume about Verano, that you guys have not done a sell lease back. I think the assumption is most in this uh, industry have, have done a sell lease back or multiples of them. Um, every, so that... every sell lease back deal has been across our table. And trust me, the pen's been in the hand a couple of times because, you know, capital's tight and it's hard to get these businesses up and running. But when you look at the, the big picture and you're not running near term, right, where you're just focused on, you know, the, the, the need and the want right now. Um, sometimes it's better to be a little crunched in the near term to have the, the opportunity long term to have unencumbered real estate. And just out of curiosity, do you know that number if you guys were to do sell lease back, like what the amount of cash on the balance sheet would, would increase to? We could probably rip right now easily three to four hundred million dollars of a sale lease back, like easily. And so for us, you know, and, and again, high teens um, out, you know, 15, 20 years. So, you know, you do the math on that. 
And so for us, it's not even, you know, put the interest expense aside. Let's look at what this industry could look like from an evolution perspective, right? People talk about uh, interstate commerce. Like, I think it's very far away. I think the states are going to fight like hell to, you know, keep their structure in place. But let's just play a hypothetical where, you know, interstate actually kicks in. Who can move away from their real estate faster than us to be able to create like a regional structure? And then now you start to think about that beverage model I talked about, economies of scale and distribution platforms. And so it wasn't necessarily about saving money on the interest expense side, but it was also maintaining the flexibility to transform the business in light of you know potential moves that can be made. Yeah, no, that, that that's a good point. It seems like you guys are sort of setting up in, in a hub basis as well, sort of, you know, Arizona, Nevada in the Southwest, you have Florida in the Southeast, uh, a lot of stuff in the Northeast and Midwest. So it seems like from a capacity standpoint, you guys have sort of built for that in mind. That's very fair. And it's uh, part of the strategy. And, and let me just ask you, so that's on, on slide eight, I'm referencing for your footprint. Uh, in California, there's like slashes through it. What does that mean for California? So it, technically, we have a, a presence in California. Um, it's a pesticide remediation plant. So if you're next to a farmer and they spray and it gets on, you can send your product to us and we run it through. It's it, we, we don't even really consider it to be part of the business. It was a, a legacy person here that ended up getting this uh, for us. But I can tell you we're not interested in California. It's, uh, you know, for us to, to, you know, you think about Michigan, but Michigan on steroids. Right. And so, yeah. you know, California is a very fragmented state. For us to make any moves, it's going to take a lot of M&A. It's going to take a lot of dollars. It's barely going to move the market share needle, and it's not going to be profitable. So I think you've seen a lot of operators make a big play in California and then have this moment where they're pivoting and trying to get out. So for us, you know, we'll, we'll have those conversations. We'll continue to evaluate California. But similar to Michigan, Colorado, and other states, we're going to let them kind of, you know, consolidate and, and you know, as we said, beat each other up a little bit to see what that state looks like. But for now, it's just it doesn't fit the the mold of what we um, have from a Verano perspective. And, and you know, I, I, I get the sense Verano doesn't have this feeling that they need to compete with their brands in the California to prove out that that brand is a top brand nationwide. Is, is that correct? No, it, it's, it's, yes. Uh, it's very tough to compete in California. I mean, the legacy brands that they have there, um, you know, you, you look at the market, right? Look at the market of California versus in Illinois. You have people in Illinois that are trying to figure out the difference between Indica and Sativa. And you have people going to California smelling six different Indicas and saying, I like the terpene profile of this one better than this one. So it's an extremely sophisticated market and we would never be arrogant enough to think that we could just go in there and say, Hey, we're Verano flag in the ground and, and, you know, come smoke our, our flower because there's very, very strong brands in there. So I think if we ever did anything in California, we would almost look to partner. And that would be, again, when you think about the whole in a portfolio, if we had a need in California, um, obviously Verano flower would play a role, but um, you know, obviously there's some very, very strong brands out there. Right. And it seems like there's not even a need to sort of go bring the Verano brands and strains to California and find a partner there, right? Right. Absolutely. Not. Yep. And then another state um, on on sort of uh, your footprint overview that stood out to me is, is Massachusetts. So there's uh, two dispensaries there. Why why not a third? Or is that? So looked, yeah, no, we've looked. Um, you know, our, our, our objective is to maximize our footprint in every state. And so I think conversations that we were having were 
kind of this pre-recessionary period and, you know, you started to see asset values come down. Um, you saw Rhode Island pick up steam, right? And that's going to have an impact on the Massachusetts market. And you've seen some other operators start to struggle in that state. You know, we've been very happy with the assets that we had. We built a cultivation facility, 26,000 square feet in Sharon. Um, it's, you know, double and triple stacked in certain areas. So we're very pleased with the, the footprint that we have right now, right, right, right now, but we're not uh, in desperation mode to, to max out our dispensary footprint right now. If the right opportunity presents itself, we'll absolutely look at that. But um, Massachusetts is another market that needs to play out a little bit more before we you know, make some investments in there. So there's no rush to be in a big city like a Boston or a Cambridge on your end? Yeah, I would say if that, you know, if, if there was a, you know, a, a solid opportunity at the right valuation, we would look at it. But, you know, it's it's expensive to operate in big cities. And I think there's a reason you, you've you seen some of the operators like in Chicago, like, you know, we could have opened up another dispensary in Chicago. And we moved it to Naperville, higher, higher traffic. It's, you know, very affluent neighborhood. And, and so I think, you know, those types of um, considerations come into play. But again, and I'm not trying to be, you know, vague here, but we will evaluate every opportunity and we have. I mean, we've looked at multiple opportunities in Massachusetts and just haven't found the right one for to max out that footprint. And, and then, you know, as you sort of look to compete and, and keep your footing amongst the tier one MSOs, you know, in addition to, to revenue and adjusted EBITDA and, and margin percentages, what, what else do you sort of pay attention to to sort of stack rank against these other MSOs? So, you know, I think we have definitely led the charge on, on the EBITDA side, right? I think people are, are trying to predict us coming down into the same range as some of the others. But, you know, again, you know, you look at the, the, the origin of our business, like George is a business operator, like he won a license in Illinois and, and actually had an ability to say, I'm going to take my real estate and construction team down to LV and evaluate the survey, you survey the land and do like a lot of people came from a legal background or a banking background, they want a license and they're like, well, now they have to figure out how to run a business. So I think the, the way that, you know, we continue to maintain a leadership role is to do what we know how, how to do best. And that's operate an efficient business. It's invest wisely, not too far ahead of growth, but, you know, not missing opportunities to, to leverage growth. And so I think we've definitely shown a history of being able to do that. But you know, I think it's, um, you know, we just got to make sure from a branding perspective, we stay on point from a cost perspective, we're, you know, we're, uh, you know, remaining tight on our cost controls. Um, and then, you know, if there's opportunities uh, for new states to, to layer into our portfolio that, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look to do so, but it's going to be business as usual for Verona. I mean, we've had a lot of work to get done over the last, you know, almost two years now. We went public. We had a lockup schedule we had to get past. We closed 15 acquisitions. We had we had conversion from IFRS to GAP. We did two amendments to our debt facility. We did a bought deal. We did a refi of our debt facility. And so now we're at a point where we can just take a breath and feel like we can just operate like a normal business without, you know, a lot of outside um, factors that we have to take care of. So again, it's just Doing the Verano um, thing, it's 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 remaining you know efficient and um, you know high quality. And and then on doing the Verano thing, there was a recent. Uh, you guys were recently in the news for your office complex, and it seems like you guys bought an apartment complex to to house your office. Can you tell us more about that? So uh, Ukraine, for some reason, just loves to, to write about our office space. So it's um, it's a mixed use, um, you know, complex that, um, you know, again, we're being very careful to comment on at this time. Um, we haven't announced any plans efficient, uh, uh, um, you know, publicly. 
But I can tell you um, with how rapidly we grow as a business, uh, it shows you that we aren't cutting headcount. We actually need uh, a bigger office space because we are rapidly growing our headcount. But we're very careful to comment too much on the office space, just you know, given some of the sensitivities uh, with lenders and and um, you know real estate owners and whatnot. So. Yep, yep, that makes sense. And then just uh, you know, adding on to that question, are you guys from a corporate standpoint mostly remote or mostly uh, people in the office in Chicago? How's that blend look on on the corporate side? I mean, we definitely have some flexibility, but I think um, we definitely lean more towards um, in office, right? I think collaboration, being able to pop into someone's office or or meet in person, um, is definitely the uh, preference of George and, and even myself, where. I just feel like you get more done instead of having to set up a zoom and then everyone is muted at first and then the video doesn't work. And, you know, we've all been through the, you know, a thousand zoom calls. Uh, I, I think the the preference is for in, in person. Great. And then, you know, I want to touch back on something you mentioned earlier in PA about timing for adult use, given that you guys have 15 dispensaries here. I think you're pretty plugged into the state. So with sort of Shapiro being governor and Fetterman winning the Senate seat, you don't think that's going to advance uh, PA to, to look at adult use much sooner? Um, it could. All right. I mean, what we're hearing is, um, you know, potentially like a state level 280E um, focus might, you know, be a little bit ahead of adult use. Um, I hope I'm wrong, right? I hope it, it does accelerate. And again, we have the ability to turn on CapEx um, investments into the state and, and fully get that second facility built out in addition to our 62,000 square foot you know, current operations. So I do think there is uh, a much easier path to adult use turning on with this current, the new regime coming in. Um, Fetterman's always been pro-cannabis as, as well as Shapiro, but um, you know, it's kind of yet to be determined. But again, having the ability to pivot quickly is 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 really an ability we feel like we're second to none on in, in the space. Yeah, because because I think people don't realize that PA would probably from a don't use standpoint be your third biggest state after a Florida and a Illinois. 18 dispensaries, 62,000 square foot current cultivation facility. And you know we have plans. We again first phase probably 75,000 square feet and can ramp up much larger than that. So um, PA can be a very big market for us. And it's a market we're, we're, you know, building our presence in. We just launched Verano Flower in August and just currently launched Essence and, you know, more recently, um, the Savvy brand into PA. So when you think about pricing dynamics and whatnot that a lot of people have faced in Pennsylvania, um, we were doing that from an agri-kind, which is the former, you know, owner of the facility. And now we're really competing with the high-end brands that we're, that we're known for. And then last question for you, you know, there's a lot of talks about legislation today and people are going to put out their predictions for 2023. Um, you know, any thoughts on either of those points? Well, I mean, I won't even make a joke about it because the jokes aren't funny about safe passing at this point. But I would say, um, you know, again, we're very similar to a lot of, a lot of other operators. We've never been more bullish on safe actually passing right now. Like, what does that look like is kind of yet to be determined. Um, it's been very politicized and been used ahead of elections. But the good news is, you know, it was played up. You know, Biden talked about the rescheduling and then safe started to pick up some steam ahead of the midterms. Well, it's continuing after. Right. And so what we're hearing is that there is a very good chance that the votes are in place to get safe across the finish line. And if you look at the setup of the House versus the Senate, you know, you have a blue Senate, a red House. But even within those, they're very close, uh, you know, in, in proportion. So it, it, this is as bipartisan, I think, as a Congress as we've ever had. 
and you're really starting to get some interest in, in getting safe across the finish line. So again, what does safe look like? I don't know, but any safe passage will be a massive uh, benefit to this industry. And you say passing, you, you mean more so near term, right? Next sort of couple months. That's, I would say in the lame duck session, we're hearing very, very good things, but you know, again, yet to be determined.